All right, Revelation chapter 2. Let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last time. We're going to get into the church at Pergamos, starting in verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Man, what a, what a phrase, man. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Man. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Weird, huh? And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written. We sing it, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh yes, it's mine. I love the song, I'm not mocking it. But, <laughs> this, this ain't talking about you, and we ain't even really sure. This is, a, this is wild stuff, man. And in the stone a new name written, that which no man knoweth, say he that receiveth it. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We ask you to help us uh, as we get into this passage of Scripture. God, I pray that you would uh, give us the learning that we need and, and, Lord, the conviction that we need as well. Help us as we go through this not to just be uh, purely clinical or studious, but help us also not to forget to make some ap- practical application to our life. Speak to our hearts, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, now we're coming into the Pergamus church period. Obviously, as we've already beat half to death, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time beating on it again. But to remind you, this is seven literal churches that will be in existence during the tribulation period. Uh, surprisingly enough, just just surprising, just because of the depth and length and width and breadth and wet, yeah, that breadth, width, and height of the power of God and of His book, uh, it's wild how we can look at these seven churches that John wrote down there in 90 AD, prophesying of churches coming in the future tribulation period, and at the exact same time, he's laying out things that hadn't happened yet. And as we go through 2,000 years of church history, we can watch church history line up with these seven churches so precisely that we can even date those segments throughout church history. And you can go back and study secular history that proves that what we're seeing we're not reading into. So what is happening here is this is doctrinally prophesying about seven literal churches and preaching to seven literal churches in the tribulation period after the church, you and I, are raptured out. A church is nothing more than a called out assembly, a group, a local bunch of people. It's Israel called out of Egypt, right? That, that They were the church in the wilderness. God refers to them as such. So they were called out of Egypt and they were a bunch of people gathered together. So when he's talking to the churches in the tribulation period, it's not saying that they're the body of Christ. It's saying there are local groups of people getting together and they're in these local areas. And he's speaking specifically to seven local churches while also giving us an unbelievable layout of church history that we can learn a lot from. The Pergamos church history ran from 325 to 500 A.D. All right? And what it means is much marriage. That's what Pergamos means. And man, did you ever have a whole lot of marrying going on. That's why God has an issue with them as we get down through here, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But they had a problem. They were committing fornication. They were marrying. Uh, they're marrying and giving in marriage. And it was a spiritual fornication. So Pergamos was set up by Smyrna. In the Smyrna church period, what that was, was it was, the, uh, it was like the courtship. It was like the engagement of the church and the world, the church and the government. And what happened is that in 313 AD, the Edict of Milan was, was given and was set out, which was like the official engagement began in 313. Well, interestingly enough, where that came from was Constantine, Right? Constantine had his supposed conversion 
in 312. And what had happened is in 312, Constantine saw this vision. And the historians make this big deal, especially the church historians, okay? I say that with tongue-in-cheek, right? The church historians. They make this big deal out of Constantine's conversion and how he had, I think it was this Christian father and a, or a secular father, a Christian mother, or vice versa. So he had these two different influences. And up till that point, he worshipped the sun god. He was a monotheist that worshipped the sun. And coincidentally, uh, I guess the birth date of the sun was December 25th. And he was worshipping the sun god. And so he has, this, he has this issue that he's going through in his own personal life and he's praying and he's fasting and he's seeking God and all this stuff. And then he's, he's coming into a battle and he sees this vision from God of a cross and it says, in this sign, conquer. And that cross had on it a couple of letters from the Greek alphabet, the Rho Chi or the Chi Rho or Kiro, I think is how it's pronounced. What it is is it's a, like an R or a PX. And it's the first two letters from the Greek word for Christ. It's the CH, right? For Christ. And so he has this sign that he gets from heaven in some kind of a vision. That is his conversion to Christianity. And then he goes and has all these successes in battle. And obviously the God of the Christians is the right God. Because he gave me victory, temporal victory in this world. We conquered and we won. And so he converts to Christianity. I have a big problem with his conversion. Don't you? I mean, you are a Bible believer, right? Any Bible believer, whether you live in 325 or 313 or 312 or 2023, any Bible believer on the planet has a problem with his conversion. Somebody comes to me and says, oh, I'm a Christian. Great. When did you get saved? Well, you know, it was back about five years ago, and, you know, I was really praying, and God spoke to me. I had a vision. I'm always a little bit like, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, all right. I understand that God's God. I understand in some places in this world, now, hear me out, don't call me a heretic. In some places in this world, you can't get a Bible. It's hard to get a Bible. If you get caught with a Bible, you're dead. And I do know a couple of instances where I think genuinely somebody was truly seeking God, did not know the truth, but saw the difference between Islam or Buddhism and Christianity. Hinduism and Christianity. And while they're seeking and praying and trying to, that God can speak to them however God wants to speak to them. You're okay with that, right? He is God. Somebody comes to me in the United States of America with churches on every corner and a Bible in their hand and a, you know, a, a device that can connect them to all kind of preaching in their hand and they're telling me they had some kind of a vision and they have no Bible at all to back up what they believe. They can't show you chapter and verse for why they believe what they believe. Nobody's ever showed them they're a sinner from the Bible. Christ died for sinners. That's just no way you can get to heaven by your own works, but it's by His righteousness. He shed His blood. You know nothing about any of that, but you got some kind of a conversion to Christianity. Constantine had plenty of light outside of signs in the, in the sky. Do you know that throughout Smyrna and throughout the Pergamos church period, they say the estimates were like probably 10 million or more Bible-believing Christians spread all over Africa and Europe. The Bible was going like crazy and the gospel was everywhere, but he wants to win this battle. He wants to get more money, more power. He wants to be the number one emperor in the world and he's in a desperate moment and a sign appears to him in heaven and it says in this sign, conquer. Open your New Testament and show me where God tells you to conquer in the name of Jesus Christ by your sword. Where? <laughs> I'm not against you if you're in the military going to war when your commander-in-chief tells you to go to war. I don't think, I'm not a Puritan like off the deep end on that stuff like Christians shouldn't fight. I think you know that I <laughs> think fighting's kind of cool actually. I'm saying this, where in the name of Christ and in the name of truth do we spread Christianity at the tip of a sword? That's a Muslim playbook. I think any God that needs you to get a sword or a gun and spread Christianity violently or oppressively like that, that's an impotent God. 
You're trying to tell me that that God cannot speak to the heart of a man. See, the sword that I'm wielding this morning and, and this, this evening, it, it's way more powerful than all that. It's, I won't even know that I cut you way down deep into the deepest part of your psyche. But I, I, I stand here while I'm preaching and I watch the message and the Bible bring people to tears while I'm preaching. That is, that's power. He don't need your sword. But Constantine then went and got this victory. And so in the Edict of Milan, he set out this deal where it was like, okay, listen, anybody can pray to and worship any god that they want, whether it's the sun god or the god of the Christians. or There's religious liberty for all. Now, here's the point that I want to make. Excuse me for this. And you guys know, I hope you know, that I... I do tend to be patriotic. I do wish that I'd have been in the military. Nothing makes me more angry than balloon festivals over our country. I think that's absolutely appalling to me. And the fact that they would stick and even have the guts to do something like that makes me feel weak. I think there's literally one way to handle that. I don't think it would be a problem at all if you voted for Pedro. I'm your Pedro. It'll stop. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not anti-American. And I'm definitely not anti-government. I don't think that's a biblical perspective. But I do want to tell you this about your country. This foolishness from the pulpits that, that exalts America as though we're just like, we're just like, this is just, this country was founded on God. It was founded on religious liberty, genius. Do you ever stop and ask yourself what religious liberty is? That means, if you're really... An American, a Bible-believing American, patriotic Bible-believing American, then shut your cotton-picking mouth about all the Muslims coming over here. You're really an American. You really believe in what we stand We stood for religious liberty. Do you realize, have you done the research on the Founding Fathers to know how many of them actually weren't born again? They were deists. How many of them actually were atheistic? It's been a twisted history of our country. We were founded on rebellion. We didn't want to pay our taxes. I know that just ticks off Bible believers. Go think. If you got a problem with me about that one, I don't know what to tell you. But I'm trying to say religious liberty was what Constantine was bringing in, and it was what ruined the church. As soon as they got their peace... He passes in the Edict of Milan an order that all confiscated properties were to be given back to the Christians. So not only do they stop getting persecuted, thank God for that, right? Oh, praise the Lord, our persecution stopped, but we finally got our property back. Well, what had been happening when they lost their property is they had nothing else to live for but spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel was spreading. But Smyrna set up Pergamos. And what happened is when he got into the Pergamus period, Constantine's fully in his, in his position and he's got this relationship with the Christians going on and everything's peaceful in the kingdom. And that's when in 325, the marriage of the church to the world, the church to the state, the marriage actually put, took place. And that was at the Edict of Milan, right? No, the Edict of Milan was 313. 325 was the, um, help me out. I put down the Edict of Milan, but it was wrong. What's the other one? Nicaea. Yes, Council of Nicaea. Thank you. My historian up here. You should come teach this part. The Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea actually made the church state official. Christianity was the official religion of Rome. You know what the Christians did? They sold out. So Constantine sets up the church state, and what he does with the bishops and all the the pastors in those churches, is he actually starts paying them. They're employees of the government. He starts building them uh, uh, church buildings and and, and the monasteries and all that stuff. He starts pouring money into them, and now they're literally hooked up with the state in this agreeable relationship where they're getting money from the state, power from the state, and recognition from the big shots that are running the world and running Rome, and now all the preachers and all this stuff are connected. Well, what had started happening even back in the Smyrna period, and especially took off in the Pergamos period, when you study church history, is an unbelievable amount of cults began popping. I mean, Judaizers and Gnostics and all the rest of this, the cults under religious liberty, right? 
Praise God for religious liberty. Okay, yeah, thank, hey, it is a blessing to be able to get up here and preach whatever I want and no government coming to arrest us. Ain't that a blessing? I appreciate the peace. Don't you, don't you like the peace? So does all the other Christians around you. I want to ask you a question. This is terrible, right? This is tough. How's it working for us? While I thank God for the liberty to preach and teach whatever I want, unhindered, no jail, no beatings, not getting arrested, not having my family tore up, not having to worry, having guys posted out there to watch when the cops are coming down in a long line with the lights coming from this way and they're coming from that way, SUVs and the whole nine yards flooding the property, and okay, here they come, and we're all scrambling out the back and trying to make it out of here. Literally. That's literally what your forefathers went through to serve God. Muddy parking lots are nothing. And running a vacuum cleaner to clean it up is nothing. That's what they went through. Well, aren't you glad that doesn't happen to you? I mean, ain't that kind of nice, dads? I mean, you know, <laughs> we've got a lot of girl dads around here. We need to get some more boys in here. Girl dads, ain't that nice? You'll sit here and know my daughters are safe and I'm not, they're not going to be, uh, I'm not, my family's not going to be tore up and abused. Man, what a blessing. Thank you, Lord. But I want to ask you a question. Is it really a blessing? Because what the devil did is the devil got the church to enjoy their freedom from persecution so much that they lost their fire for God. They enjoyed that marriage with the state. They enjoyed the benefits of Rome. And then the multiplication of cults, right? Because anything goes. So you can't complain when they're building the Hindu temple over here. They were trying, and we started praying about it. That thing was going to be massive. I forget how many. Does anybody remember? Hundreds of seats. Does anybody remember the size of that thing? Some of you locals. Do you remember? No? It was huge, though. Huge Hindu temple. Huh? I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was like, like way up in the hundreds, over a thousand, closer to two. Huge Hindu temple right here. Well, we prayed about it, and it fell through. Thank you, Jesus. But really, do you have a right to complain? I mean, you're an American, right? They got a right to teach whatever they want to teach in this country. And that's, well, that's a blessing. But it's also a curse. Now watch the trick, because this one is going to be, this is going to be practical to you in your life. Watch the trick. This is how subtle, more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. What do you think happens to a preacher when there's a multiplication of cults? Me. If cults are popping up everywhere, what do you think my natural instinct is going to be? Study them a little bit. Figure them out. You're, you're, uh, you're right on it. Begin fighting it. I have to study it and figure them out to begin fighting it. So what the church fathers did is they took the bait from the devil and they began writing and discussing and debating and authoring and writing. What were they doing? They were kicking back against the Gnostics. They were kicking back against the Judaizers. And they stopped preaching the Bible. They stopped witnessing. The church stopped going out and reaching people and bringing people to church with them that need Jesus Christ, that need to be fed. They stopped evangelizing. The preachers were no longer just open your Bible, chapter and verse, next week, next chapter, next verse. Stop preaching the Bible and feeding God's people. They got distracted. They turned into guys that were defenders of the faith, theologians, and book authors. And that was a trick of the devil. Now, I'll show you that I'm right on that and that I'm not just making it up. Go to the book of Titus, if you would, please. Titus chapter number 3. Now, this is why it's impertinent and it's important to you and I tonight. Titus chapter number 3. These church fathers are what the Roman Catholic Church always wants to refer to as authorities, you know, that pass their authority down and their doctrine down. But, they, but they, what they were, at, by the time you get into Pergamos, what the vast majority of them were was absolute heretics. Verse uh, Titus chapter 3, a man that is an heretic, after the first and second admi admonition, write a book, teach a class, get it together and make sure your whole church understands the, the depth of this wicked doctrine, defend the faith. What's it tell you to do with a heretic after you give him two shots? 
Done with them. Literally, done with them. Like, you give them an admonition, they come back. So, okay, I don't know if he just came back because he's an idiot that doesn't want the truth, or if he came back because his conscience is bothering him, he's confused and has really been taught something that's wrong, and I want to be gracious and give him a chance to learn the truth. So I give it another shot. And when the heretic pushes back, you know what you do with him? I'll see you at the judgment, man. No, I'm not debating you. You're afraid of it. Listen, they will push every single button you got. You're afraid of a debate? You know I'd smoke you. You don't know your Bible. You're like, All right, man. Have a, I'll see you at the judgment. You know what? It's a, it's a distraction. Do you know how often you get caught up in it at work? Debating somebody else who's supposed to be a Christian, you both claim the name of Jesus, and the lost people that actually might truly get saved are listening to the two Christians. You're like, hey, me and that guy are nowhere near. We're not, we're not the same thing. Don't, don't lump me in with him. They don't know the difference, folks. You know, they real, a lot of nowadays the lost people don't know the difference between a Roman Catholic and a Bible-believing Christian. They just owe oh, those Christians. So you know what they accuse you of? Oh, don't you know how many Christians shed blood? Do you know how many of those wars were Christian wars? You're a Christian. No, those are Roman Catholic wars. But the world doesn't know the difference. So here you are debating with somebody over heresy. God told you after the second try, shut up. Reject them. Let them go. Walk away. Leave it alone. You know what I tell them? I say, I want to stay your friend. What? No, I want to stay your friend. I don't want hard feelings between us. So that maybe someday if you, if you come around, we can actually have a good conversation. In the meanwhile, I'm not fighting with you. Why? Because I care about you. I want to stay your friend. What I know, I know I'm obeying what God said. And I'm trying to leave the door open so that maybe later they can get right. Sometimes your heart for truth gets you running down a road that's nothing more than a trap from the devil. You know, you can't win them all. You can't win any of them. God does it anyhow. First Timothy, go to First Timothy chapter 6. These guys began disregarding what God told them to do. The preachers were. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. Well, that's what the Gnostics were doing, and the Judaizers were doing. So, okay, here's those guys. What am I supposed to do with them? Well, know something about him. He's proud. He knows nothing. Watch it. But doting about questions and strifes of words. That's what they like to do. The yeah butters. They always want to have a question, you know, and, and, and get into a debate with you over, well, if that wasn't really in the originals, and should that mean, is, does that mean what it is? And, well, you know, the, the other Bibles put it this way, and he's just, he's proud. He doesn't know nothing. He doesn't know God. He doesn't know the power of God. He doesn't know the Bible. He knows nothing. I don't care how many degrees he's got. He knows nothing. He just wants to argue about words and what comes of it. This is how you know you got trapped into something. Whereof cometh envy, strife, you ever get where your hands start shaking? You start choking on your spit because you're nervous. You start stuttering a little bit. You feel your blood pressure go up. Your heart rate go up. Your pits start sweating. It, something's wrong. This ain't truth. This ain't peaceable truth, gentle truth. This isn't an encouraging conversation where you're really leading somebody to Christ. This is turning into a fight. And uh, comes strife of words, envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. Watch it, supposing that gain is godliness. What are you supposed to do with them? From such withdraw thyself. Back to Revelation chapter 2. You know what happened? They got religious liberty and a whole bunch of money and support from the state. And fat salaries from Constantine and from the Roman government and big, beautiful church buildings. The people didn't give to do that, give to God and watch God do it for them. The government was hooking them up. So there's a lot of money to be made in being a, a chaplain in the Roman army or however, however they laid that stuff out. And what their problem was, they were after the money. That's what the cults are after. They're after your money. That's what the Roman Catholic Church is after. It was founded on somebody conquering something to get richer and more powerful. 
And the beginning of that thing is in Rome under Constantine, where he made a Catholic, which means universal church. It was the formal church state of the government. You know what Rome still is today? It's a church state. They're their own country. They got their own military. That, that joker is supposedly the head of a church, and he's got the ear of presidents and kings all over the planet. And powerful influence. He's a church state. That thing has nothing to do with the Bible-believing Christianity. That has nothing to do with what Jesus Christ died for. Nothing at all. And coincidentally, when that Pope wears a hat, his hat, his mitre, he's got a, 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 a key row on there. He's got the same sign on that that Constantine had when Constantine saw it in the sky and began wearing it on his helmet. It's a pharmacaea sign. It has to do with drugs and witchcraft and sorcery. I mean, the, 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 the appalling nature of the fact that a man would put the name of Christ on his own forehead and sit on a throne. And we'll get to it in a minute. So this is the layout of what's happening in Pergamos when you look at church history and then you look at these next few verses, which we'll go through quickly, and you see like, man, when I study church history, it's unbelievable that this is no question what Pergamos was. This is the same things that are going on that he's prophesying about before it happened. That's going to happen more in the tribulation period. So don't forget... Throughout this whole period, right, you've got all these church fathers. And by the way, let me mention this. These church fathers are debating all the cults, right? And their writings are things like the epistles of Clement, shepherd of Hermas, the epistle of Barnabas. They're writing extra biblical and apocryphal books. And Rome is accepting the writings of these church fathers, these now priests, and giving them status equal to the Bible. Does that make sense? Listen, you're at 325 years A.D. You understand that? Millions of Christians spread out all over Africa and Europe. They have been spreading the word of God all over the known world. They're writing copies of copies of copies of copies, and they're copies in the hands of the common Christian are coming from Antioch, they're in Syria, they're not coming from Egypt in Alexandria. The school of Alexandria gets established under, I believe it was under Clement, in this same time period in Pergamos. It was a Catholic school. It was connected to Rome. These guys are all connected to Rome. They're all in the pocket of the Roman government. They're all about the money. The church literally married up with the state for the love of money and power and ease and success in life and then got all off track writing a whole bunch of stuff because they're disobeying Titus and Timothy when God told the preachers what to do. The preachers weren't doing what God told them to do. They got distracted. They took the bait in a good thing fighting the cults and, and defending the faith and they lost their minds. And then Rome gives their writings all this credit and then you come along today... And then, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? And what about this? And oh, they found this, and it's super old. It's way older. Listen, if you find something that's that old, do you know why it's that old? With something that's over a thousand years old, do you understand that in order for it to last that long, you can't touch it? The more grease you put on it, and the more you handle it and touch it, the more it breaks down. You know why you can't find these manuscripts of a King James Bible and the Receptus, the Texas Receptus, the received text that can be traced all the way back to Antioch where they were first called Christians and spread all over the known world. Do you know why you don't find oldest is best, oldest is best? No. The Vaticanus and Sidiaticus were written, translated about this same time, Pergamus period, when Rome had married the government. And then you find them intact the Vaticanus in the Vatican, because it was such a piece of garbage, nobody was using it. Nobody was copying it. And they took the bait in modern days and went all the way back to Pergamus and accepted writings that are not at all inspired. They're written by perverts like Origen. 
and a whole bunch of other names that I could name that the Catholic Church claims as church fathers still follows a lot of their teachings and yet also the Catholic Church itself, you can look it up, condemns a lot of what Origen taught because it was so heretical. They condemn a lot of his teachings based on him being heretical and yet they still teach him and refer to some of his teachings and they like the stuff that he liked when it comes to manuscripts and Bibles. What I'm trying to say is this. If you have any other Bible than a King James Bible, what you have is a Roman Bible. It's Catholic. It comes from the wrong place and the wrong manuscripts. The right manuscripts were spread all over the planet and they were copied out and copied out and copied out and copied out and spread all over by God's people sitting down and writing copies of that and putting them into other languages. All right, so let's look at this stuff. You had the Novatians and the Donatists and all the rest of them spreading everywhere throughout these periods. Now watch. Verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now you know exactly what that is. You're a Bible believer. We don't have to turn there, do we? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and morals, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what that sword in the hand of God is? It's a Bible. You know what's really important to God? The Bible. You know what's really important to the devil? To pervert and destroy and mess up? The Bible. So you know what he's been doing all the way back there? He's been doing everything he can to stop the spread of the Bible. While the Roman Catholic Church is paying these guys and supporting these theologians and backing them all up, they're attacking and persecuting millions of people like me and you that were dissenters that refused to get involved and buy into the whole thing and they were still spreading all over the world and they were doing everything they could to take the Bible from the average man's hand, the common man's hand, who was not under the authority of some ecclesiastical and oppressive government, wasn't into all that. They were just loving God, following God, evangelizing, trying to raise their families and follow that book the best they could and they're sitting there and they're putting all this time and effort into copying that thing out and writing the Bible, writing the Bible, writing the Bible and passing it out and the Catholic Church did everything they could to Roman church did everything they could to find and burn as many of those Bibles as they could and persecute your forefathers, your real forefathers. It, it boils down to the Bible in your hand. It's a two-edged sword and it's important to God. That sword will cut you going in, but you know what it'll do? It'll heal you coming out. The Bible is literally like a surgeon's scalpel. It's painful, man. He'll cut you open. And then he divides asunder, pulls that skin open, cut that chest, that sternum open, and put those clamps on there, pull that thing wide open, and go down into that heart and start cutting on the stuff that's blocked and built up in the mess and pull that out and patch that thing over. And you know what he's doing? He's healing you. When he cuts you open, if you don't fight back and scream and yell and throw a fit, if you take it, when he cuts you, then when he pulls that sword back out, it'll heal you at the same time. And he takes the cancer, he takes the blocked arteries, he takes whatever he needs to take with it, and you, you turn out better because of it. He said, these things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. You better be careful. God's got a sharp sword, and he knows exactly how to use it. And I am telling you right now, you can't beat God. There, you know how much art there is to sword fighting? My dad took me to fencing classes when I was a kid. Man, you wouldn't believe how much there is to it. It's, it's incredible. It's pretty cool. I, I, would never, I would never want to try to fight God. He knows how to use this thing. Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now look at that. They're dwelling right where Satan's seat is. Now, that seat had gone from Babylon to Pergamos to Rome. You know what that seat is? That seat is the Roman Pope's throne. That's what happened in church history. When he sits on that throne, he sits there and he speaks ex cathedra. And you can go look it up. There's a whole litany of things that have to be in place for his words when he's sitting on that throne to be considered ex cathedra. And what that literally means, he puts that mitre on, 
with Ro, Kiro on his on his head, and he's sitting on that throne with a with a with a with a crown on, and on that crown is the name of Christ. And according to his doctrine, when he sits there and everything's in line and begins to speak under certain circumstances, he is speaking as though the voice of Christ is speaking on earth. That is demonic. That is antichrist. That is going to happen in the tribulation period when he goes into the temple and says, Hey, I am Christ. I'm here. That's what he's already doing. That's Roman Catholicism. I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm going to say this kind of sharp, but I don't mean it as belittling as it sounds. You Americans, okay? Now, that's meant for the whole nation, right? Not attacking you personally. But you Americans don't understand Catholicism. I don't care how devout of a Catholic you are in this country, you don't understand Catholicism. You need to go with us to Haiti. You need to go with us to Mexico. You need to go to the Philippines. You need to see what real Catholicism actually is. You got a watered down, pertified, rich, uh, 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 influential, sophisticated version in this country. You want to see real Catholicism? That thing is evil. It's wicked. When a man can sit on a throne in a political church state and put on a hat that he calls a crown with Christ's name on it and say he's Christ. And then speak with that kind of authority and people got to bow to a sinful man. That's, that's Satan's seat. And so, of course, he's ordering Christians like you and me who won't come in underneath his, his, his system and tithe to his ever-richening church. Of course, he's ordering us killed. Of course he don't want the King James Bible before you had a King James Bible in English. The, the forefathers and the forerunners of the same book you're holding in your lap. Of course he don't want that spreading. He don't want preachers like me getting up and calling him Satan. He'll have him killed. He wants the people blinded. He wants those church fathers and those priests and those popes to just make sure everybody believes what they're told to believe, the way they're told to believe it. Don't worry about it. You're good with God. I made sure you're good with God and enjoy your money. Enjoy your freedom. Enjoy your success. Go live your life. Go work your jobs. Just make, just, just make your best life now. It's Satan's seat. And thou holdest fast my name. He said you're, you're living right in the belly of the beast. But what you're doing is you're doing what's important. You know what's important to God? The name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It glorifies God when you confess there's one name and it's not the Pope and it's not the Roman Catholic Church. There's one name we bow to. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, he's magnified his word above all his name. I can tell you exactly what your relationship with the Lord is based on your relationship toward His Word. Thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. It ain't yours and it ain't a church's. It's His. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. We have no idea who this guy is. This is the only time he pops up in the Bible and it's all supposition from there. Um, could be somebody coming in the future. Probably was a guy that existed in the past, but we don't know nothing more about him other than he was a faithful martyr and he was slain among them. So I don't know where Satan dwelt. Maybe they brought him in there to the Vatican and cut his head off. I don't know. But he was, he was a martyr in that day. Look at verse 14. I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, which taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. The doctrine of Balaam, you got to watch out for this one. If you really want to study it in depth, you, you'll go back and read Numbers chapters 22 through 25. You can look at it later. But interestingly enough, what happened in this situation is that Balaam was, was Balak was trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. Remember that? And he couldn't curse what God blessed. God had blessed Israel, and he couldn't curse them. So they're offering him money, and they're offering him prestige, and they're offering him power, and they're giving him all these, and, and he's like, I can't go against God. I can't go against God. And so Balaam's all frustrated because he really wants all the stuff the world's offering him. So he comes up with a plan. He says, I know what to do. I know how to get around this one. 
So he taught God's people to marry the Moabites. Pergamos means what? Much marriage. What did Balaam do? He said, you got the doctrine of Balaam there. Oh, we're not worshiping Baal. Oh, yes, you are. Well, how are we doing that? Spiritually, you're marrying up with Moab. Spiritually, you're so married up with the world that all of a sudden now God's people are acting just like the world. So he taught God's people to get around the rules. He taught Balak how to curse Israel and drop their power and drop the threat that Israel was to Balak. He taught them to do it by teaching the Israelites to intermarry with the Moabites and then commit fornication and eat things uh, sacrificed to idols. You, You want me to show you the doctrine of Balaam in the day and age that you live in? Go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. This is pretty interesting. Jeremiah chapter 9. Look at verse 14. Well, look at verse 13. And the Lord said, saith, Because ye have forsaken my law, which I have set before them, and have not obeyed my voice. See that? Didn't I point out to you earlier that the simple problem with the church, quote, fathers, was that they stopped preaching and they started becoming defenders of the faith and theologians, authors, fighting against the cults? They didn't obey what God said. Instead of first and second admonition, reject them and move on, keep preaching, they got all off track with authoring books and being smart and having degrees and going to Bible colleges and all the rest of that stuff. So they, did, they disobeyed. So they've disobeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after, watch it, the imagination of their own heart and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. You see it? Doctrine of Balaam. What is it? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You can't control what you love. Follow your heart. God is love. Love is God. God is love and love is God, so we should love. Love everybody. Love everything. Love, love, love. Don't hate. Why do we got to call sin, sin? You, you shouldn't hate. Don't ever hate. Love everything. and every, God is love. We love God. Love people. Loving God. Loving people. All are welcome. Everybody welcome. All inclusive. Unity. It's the doctrine of Balaam. It's following the heart of a man rather than following what God said, the way God said it, because God said it. It's the doctrine of Balaam. Back over to Revelation chapter 2. You know what I think is hilarious? You live in the United States of America and there's no official church state. But you know what the devil's done? He's created a Pergamos church. It's called the Contemporary Church Movement. It's modern church. You know what it literally is? You young people need to listen to me. You know what it literally is? It's much marriage. It's the marrying of truth with the world. It's called Christian rock. There is no such thing. I don't care if you agree with me or not. You've got a right to be wrong. It's called Christian rock. What are you talking about? It's called making church on Sunday morning look like a nightclub. It's called the doctrine of Balaam. It's called apostasy. It's called, I got somewhat against thee. You're naming the name of Christ, but you're throwing out the Bible that you know is the right word of God to bring in some watered-down version that makes everybody feel better, and you're bringing in the world's music into the church so that lost people feel comfortable to sit in church. I know some within rock-throwing distance of here that brag about having transvestites in their church. That are proud of having homosexuals in their church. Active members of their, welcomed active members of their church. Hey, we don't hate them. We want to see them saved. God will save sinners no matter what their sin of preference is. We know that. But we don't okay. We don't marry up with the world system. We have some things God expects of us and we stand by those things whether the world likes it or not. Because truth is truth and pleasing Him is way more important than pleasing them. And that's what it looks like in this day and age, in this country, and in this culture. It looks like your modern contemporary church. I know one young man that literally approached him, uh, the leaders of the church, and straight up asked him, Why won't you preach against sin? 
And the response was, well, we don't want to make people feel bad because we have people in our church who've messed up before. Cop out. Why won't you preach doctrine? They said, all we want to do is affirm their faith. Because different people have different interpretations of the Bible, and we don't know that our interpretation is really right, and we don't want to offend them if their interpretation is different from our interpretation. So what we just do is we preach the gospel, and we want to affirm their faith. Okay, Pergamos. So lost people are perfectly comfortable to sit in your church and never get challenged, and the young people are perfectly comfortable to come there and praise and worship and be in church and go fornicate. And their ignorant little moms and dads act like everything's fine. Because love, follow your heart. You're a fool. And God ain't pleased with it, and he's got someone against you, and you're going to pay for it because you know better. God, even though he loves his people, he chastises them. Now, I'm not trying to get you to hate me or nothing, but I'm going to give you the truth whether you like it or not, because I love you enough to give you the truth. Amen. He taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Write down 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. I'll just, I was going to turn there, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. We're going to wrap up tonight. But what you got to understand is what Balaam was doing is he was going after the wages of unrighteousness. The problem with Balaam is he loved his money. And you'll notice, you can, you can get the book yourself, the Vatican Billions. Filthy, 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 filthy rich church. You'd be shocked how rich they are. While they're always talking about, you know, feeding the poor and helping the homeless and kicking you off the rolls if you don't tithe because they love you so much. Filthy rich. Love money. You'll sell out. You're spiritually, you're spiritually a whore. It's a Bible word, okay? I'm going to use it. You're a spiritual whore. You'll sell out any truth as long as it lines your pocketbook, gets you a nicer car and a pool and, and a, you know, a private jet and all the rest of that stuff. God hates that stuff. All right, verse... Uh, See, I tell you, I try to teach, but preaching sneaks in there. I can't help it. So he taught him to do the wrong things and to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit fornication. So hast thou there them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. That's the clergy over the laity. That's Baal worship. That's the, that's the priestly thing that runs all the way back to the Old Testament where they wore black robes and the priests were over the people. It's an ancient doctrine. It's a demonic doctrine. It's been threaded throughout church history and subtly was brought in and brought into power, revived. It's a Babylonian thing from the Old Testament, revived in the New Testament under Pergamos. Watch verse 16. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see that? That's that sword I warned you about earlier. That really good sword that gets, has got cancer out of me. I'm alive today because of that sword. It's got cancer out of me, man. I'm healthier today. I'm so much healthier today because of that sword. I thank God. It hurts. But man, I thank God for that sword. He said, you don't repent. I'm going to come. I'm going to fight against you with that same sword. Now watch this. Pretty interesting thing here. And then we'll close up. Look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. What a weird statement. Now, we've looked at this overcoming thing. So go back to Psalm 74. We've looked at this overcoming thing quite a bit. You realize that according to 1 John, uh, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior in this dispensation, in the church age, you already have overcome, right? So they're told in the tribulation period that they have to overcome. And he says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. So Israel is going to be persecuted in the tribulation period and these churches are going to be persecuted and they're going to be scattered. They're going to be running off into the wilderness trying to survive the tribulation. And we'll get into some of that as we go through this book. But God's going to feed them from a hidden manna. Now here's a weird, this is one of the weirdest ones in all the Bible. Psalm 74 and look at verse 14. He says, Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces. Now, I don't have time to run all the references. You can go look it up. There's no question that Leviathan in your Bible is the devil. And he's a seven-headed dragon. And what God's going to do is break one of those seven heads in the tribulation period and look what he's going to do with it and givest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. 
That's a weird passage of Scripture. But the fact of the matter is, is in the tribulation period, when Israel is running for their life and trying to survive and hiding out in the wilderness, God's going to wound the head of the devil and use one of those heads to feed them manna. They're literally going to be eating Lucifer's head. The hidden manna. Now, you just imagine that for a second. Just the sword come down out of heaven and just whack! And that stinking monstrous head just it just spreads all over that wilderness, just everywhere. And those people are going around picking that thing up, and that's what they're eating. <laughs> Why does God work that way? I don't know. But there's a hidden manna, a way God's going to feed them in the wilderness by smiting the head of Leviathan. <laughs> Ain't that weird? Why would God work that way? The same reason God used ravens to feed Elijah when he was by the brook. Do you remember that? Do you know all the way through your Bible a raven's a type of a demon? Devils. Literally coming by the prophet who's out in the wilderness under persecution, surviving. You understand how hard it would be to survive? Some of you tough guys think you could do it. You probably couldn't. There's a lot of education that goes into surviving out in the wild. It's not as easy to kill something and eat it as you think. Study them lions, man. I love watching them things hunt. Wolves even hunting. You see how hard it is for them to bring down some prey? See how they get to the brink of starvation? You know how many wolf pups actually die because their parents can't feed them enough out surviving out in the wilderness? You know lion cubs do the same thing. They'll die because they can't eat enough. That's why them big old lion males, once the females go do all the hunting... A male's sauntering in. And and she backs off and he eats until he's engorged and then goes over there, lays down and burps under the, under the shade tree and then lets the females eat. It's literally survival. You're surviving out in the wilderness? Elijah's trying to survive and God says, I can send demons to take care of you. Children of Israel are trying to survive out there and God says, I'll smack the head of Leviathan and I'll feed you. You know, who, you know who your God is. You hang in there and you wait till I'm ready. But God, why? How long, Lord, the souls under the altar will talk about? How long, Lord, I'm gathering a few more. I'm letting a few more get butchered. I'm letting a few more die. I'm not ready yet. But I got you, so you stay with me. God literally feeds you off the head of Lucifer. You let God do that. Don't run your mouth about it. <laughs> Back to Revelation chapter 2 and we'll be done for tonight. He's going to give them to eat of the hidden, hidden manna. And then here's what I'm going to say about this next part. Him the, and, uh, and we'll give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written. Now, one of the things I appreciate the most about my teachers is I knew they were real because they never made something up when they didn't know. So, Brother Lynch said in the Institute when we were going through it, I have no idea. And I'm not going to make something up and try to make the Bible say something that it don't say because I have no idea. And you know what Dr. Ruckman said in his commentary when he came to this? I have no idea. So guess what? I have no idea. And you have no idea. Dr. Ruckman can't figure it out. None of us are going to. Amen. But it's a hidden name. You know that. And no man knoweth it, but he that receiving, he that receiveth it. And that's that. That looks like it's a promise to somebody out in the tribulation. That don't look like it has anything to do with me and you. What it is, I don't know. What I do know is that all throughout this period, where the church has married the world, it's as wicked as it can be, doing everything the wrong way, the Roman government has taken over and created the Roman Catholic Church, the theologians have sold out, the people have accepted it, because thank God we finally have prosperity and peace, we're Americans driving fancy cars and living in nice houses with seat warmers. I used to preach against seat warmers. I stopped. Because I got three cars or four cars now that have them. And I really like seat warmers. You know what's even better than seat warmers? Remote start seat warmers. You remote start the car from the house in the wintertime. And the seat's warm when you get in. Come on, you know you like it too. Don't look at me like that. You ain't any more spiritual than I am. If you don't got one, go buy one. You can do it. We all can. Listen. Prosperity. Peace. The church was loving it. But here's what I love about God. And you can't find it when you go through Catholic church history and the rest of this stuff. God had men 
all over the pilgrimage period preaching. I'll give you a couple of names just to help you. You got Chrysostom. They called him the Golden Mouth. He was a Greek preacher. He was preaching from the Texas Receptus. He was preaching hellfire and damnation. He was born again. He was thrown into jail and outlawed. He was later got out of jail and was exiled. And when he was exiled, he spent the remaining years of his life translating the Greek Receptus into Russian over a thousand years before the King James Bible was translated. They had a King James of their own kind of version from the same source as the King James in Russia a thousand years before you had a King James Bible. John of Antioch is another one. St. Patrick of Ireland, who would roll over in his grave if he knew that they called him St. Patrick and had St. Patty's Day. He would come back and kick the Pope in the face. St. Patrick was an animal. He preached hellfire and damnation. He was premillennial, and he preached the new birth. He'd go out in the woods and beat a drum, and when the natives would assemble, he'd jump up on the drum and preach to them. Seeing souls saved. They ain't, no, they ain't no fancy church keeping good records of what was going on. They ain't nobody paying attention to you and me. We ain't setting no records. But we're just one of thousands that are all over this country and world trying to do the same thing we're doing. But they ain't paying you any attention. You ain't making it into the history books. You had Salvan, a monk who rebelled against the church and started preaching the Bible. You had the Bible from a Greek receptus, the same source that your King James came from, translated into Norwegian, Swedish, British, Scotch, Irish, German, Spanish, French, Italian, and Russian. And the popes did the best they could to hunt those Bibles down and burn them. And you had Christians all over, just like you, your forefathers, they weren't called the same name you're called. I don't care what anybody says or how they go back and rewrite books and take old books and put new names to them to make it fit. They weren't called Baptists. But they had the same general doctrine that you have and they were living the same way and they believed God, they believed the Bible, they preached the truth and spread the truth and they never got caught up into the Roman Catholic whore. They were anti it. They knew it was unbiblical. And they were all over the world, and they still are. And they had the same book you had. We got one minute. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me show you why it's so hidden, and you don't hear about it. I'll show you why. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 32. And what shall I say more? Shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned the flight of the armies, turned, the, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead race to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection." And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy in God's perspective. They wouldn't marry up with the world, so the world rejected them. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. That they without us should not be made perfect. The only thing I can think of is this. What does that mean? They without us should not be made perfect. Perfection is completeness, right? How many people have you led to Christ? How many people have they led to Christ? How many people have they led to Christ? How many people have they led to Christ? When you die, how many people are they going to lead to Christ? And then how many people are going to get saved from what they did? How much have you tried to support this ministry so that I can study my Bible and teach and preach you the Word of God? You freed my hands from having to work a full-time job so I can take this seriously and try to give you something good. And what has God done with this pulpit through His Word? And how has that affected eternity? And what part did you play in supporting this thing to get it done? 
Well, I mean, the tally isn't going to be up until God wraps it up, till the judgment seat of Christ. So their completeness doesn't come in until the full fallout of what they were doing that they never see and never knew was even there. Stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you go, what? Huh? You did all of that from that one thing? That wh- What? But the world doesn't record it. The world doesn't see it. The world doesn't recognize it. It means nothing to them. But God sees it. Next week we'll pick it up from here because starting 500 A.D. begins the Dark Ages. Thank you, Roman Catholic Church, for giving us, was it a thousand or fifteen hundred years of Dark Ages that ended with Martin Luther coming out and beginning to preach and translate a Bible into the common man's language again. All right, we'll pick it up there next week. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we